I'd invite you this morning to turn in your copies of God's Word to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. In my consecutive reading through the Scriptures recently, I came back to this text uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning, and I was struck uh, afresh with the words of our blessed Savior here in these verses. We'll look specifically at verses 9 and 10, and and that'll be the uh, focus this morning and this afternoon, and I thought in having come across it and it being impressed upon me anew with a a peculiar force that as we come to the table today and we even now begin to prepare our hearts to come to this supper this afternoon, that this would afford us the occasion of coming to this text and just meditating on it uh, for a time. John chapter 15, our Lord says here in verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. Let's pray. Our Lord, we bow before You again this morning. And we would ask of You, our Lord, that You might be pleased to cause us to hear our Beloved's voice this day. And that in hearing His voice telling us of His great love for His people, that we would, by your Spirit, be lifted up, that we might see you, and that our love for you, Lord, might be drawn out more and more. We ask it in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Here in these words of John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10 specifically, we have a clear proclamation of Christ's love for His disciples set before us. He says, I have loved you. That's an emphatic declaration of His, what I would call, astonishing, breathtaking, and heart-stirring love for all the saints of God. He puts it here in these verses in the plainest and most profound terms. So that his meaning as he says this to the disciples cannot be confused and neither can it be ignored. When you hear them, as I said in my own reading, they come with a particular force to the soul in their clarity and in their power. And let there be no doubt that our Lord's aim in stating this is to overwhelm us with His love in such a way that our hearts will be forever captivated and forever enraptured by His love with such overwhelming force that our desires and our affections will be elevated and raised above all earthly things whatsoever they may be, and that continuously so. That is the aim of our Savior when He says... I have loved you. And after he says this, he goes on to say, 
abide in my love. The voice of the bridegroom calls out to us, brethren, in these words, rise up, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. That's what he's saying. I have loved you. Abide in my love. He comes to us in the most ardent and tender affections. Let then, as one has said, Christ stooping to us occasion this morning our rising up unto him as we consider these words. And I want you to notice three dominant features of our Savior's declaration of love. We'll deal with two of them this morning. We'll come back to the third this afternoon. Three dominant features here in this text. There are other things that could be drawn out, I believe, but there are three dominant features of our Savior's ardent declaration of His love for His people. Firstly, this. It's factual. His love for them is factual. The first thing that's worth noting about this statement here in verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. The first thing that's worth noting about that statement is that it is a declaration of the veracity of Christ's love for them. Never have there ever been truer lips that have spoken with such absolute sincerity in the declaration of one's love for the loved ones. Notice how matter-of-factly our dear Savior says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He appeals here in this text to his Father's love for him as a witness and as a testimony of the authenticity, or you could say the credibility, or you could say the reliability of his love for them. There's no hesitation in his speech as he says this to the disciples as if to say, you have seen the way that the Father has loved me. You have known the way that the Father has loved me. That love that the Father has for me is an incontestable love. And it was. And it is. And he knew that when he said this, the disciples would know that and that they would not call that into question. One has actually said... That of all of the heresies throughout the ages of the church that have sprung up, there is one thing that has never been attacked in all of the history of the church of the living God. And that is a calling into question the veracity of the love of God the Father for His Son. And when Jesus declares His love for His people, He uses that to establish it. Because he knew that in the hearing of that, none of his disciples would ever call the love of the Father for the Son into question. They had been given a VIP pass into the viewing gallery of God the Father's love for God his, the Son. They, these disciples had seen that all things had been given into His hand. They had witnessed it. They had seen the power. They had heard His prayers and seen how God had answered those prayers. They knew that the Father had come to Him and had shown Him all things that He was doing because of His love to the Son. That's what Christ declares and that's what Christ proves. He actually says, John fourteen eleven, Believe me. 
that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You've seen my works. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the power. Believe when you see those things that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me and that the Father has a great, a very great love for me. And some of these people that he's speaking to in this context would have been privy to the unveiling of his majesty. And while they, in their corruption and in the weakness of their flesh, cannot look upon the form of Christ in all of His glory, when we, they were there on that mount of transfiguration, having to, having to, as it were, close their eyes and bend their knee because of the form of the majesty that was revealed there, the Father comes and descends upon that mountain in His majestic glory, and He shows up, and not only does He... Behold the Son in all of His glory. But He says of Him, as He beholds the Son in all of His glory, This is my agapetas, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter, so overwhelmed by what was happening there on that Mount of Transfiguration, says later when he records it and thinks about it, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. In fact, it was so strong and so powerful, Peter did not want to leave what he had seen there. The point is that our Lord said here in John 15, 9, what he said because he knew that there would not be even a shred of doubt in the minds of his disciples that this love that the Father has for the Son was unquestionably true. And then he follows it with a statement that he means to be considered as equally dogmatic and as equally true. That's why he says it this way. As the Father has loved me, I also in like manner have loved you, dear saint. You see what he's doing there? In an effort to forge an unshakable confidence in them, of His love for His people, He starts with an impenetrable foundation and then He builds His love on that so that when we consider His love for us and perhaps are tempted to doubt it in our lives, we can, and I would add to that, we must look at the affirmation of that which we never question the Father's love for the Son, and then immediately and without hesitation apply that to the Savior's love for us as a guarantee. Does He, lo- Does he love me? Can there, in, in moments of trial, in moments of affliction, in moments of doubt, the heart may rise up and say, Lord, do you love me? And the Lord would say to us from this text here, even as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Don't doubt it. Or to put it negatively, he states this in such a way that makes it impossible for us to ever doubt his love for his people without first having to deconstruct his Father's love for him. Are you prepared, dear saint, to deconstruct the love of the Father for the Son? 
You can't do it. And so Jesus builds His love for us upon that. And He says to us, if you can tear down that love, then and only then can you question my love for you. So then it's a powerfully definitive statement of affirmation that we're seeing here. And oh, how I plead with you this morning, let this be, let it be a comfort and let it come to you and be an aid to you in difficult days, in the darkness, when you cannot feel His love, perhaps when you cannot see His love, perhaps when you have very little sense, if any sense at all, of His love for you. Look up to heaven and see The Father looking with infinite delight and infinite complacency into the eyes of His beloved Son and hear Him saying, This is My Son in whom I am well pleased and know that just as surely and just as wonderfully as the Father loves His Son, so the Son loves His people. That's the first point. That Christ fastens us. He bolts us to His love by building an unshakable foundation of the Father's love for Him. And He does so in order to keep us from ever questioning His love for us. That's the first point. Secondly, what we see here in this declaration of the love of the Savior is not just the veracity of it. But what we have here is given to us by way of a comparison. What Christ is doing is declaring the nature of this love with which He's loved His people. And to do this, He makes this comparison. Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So there's a comparison there. And what I find interesting about this text is that Christ makes this magnanimous declaration of His love for His people. As He does that, He's not at all interested in giving reasons. This is not a text, it's not a comparison here that He's given of reasons. This text is remarkably silent when it comes to reasons why the Savior might love His people. Nowhere does He say, I've loved you this way because. Rather, what He's saying here is a comparison. It's a text of degree. It's a text of manner, the manner of love. Because His primary concern is to prove His love for you. His primary concern is to convince you of His love for you. And His primary concern is to show you how He loves you. It's to show the extent and it's to show the amplitude of His love for His people. And that should ever, brethren, be in our thoughts as well. Because if we should ever sit down and seek a reason for His love, we would find none. There are many reasons given to us in Scripture for why the Father loves the Son. We've seen it already. He is His beloved Son in whom He's well pleased. Christ is the servant in whom is all the delight of the Father. He's always been at His side. He's always been in His bosom. He's forever been there beside Him beholding His glory and perfectly displaying it. 
Christ Jesus, if we think of His person, we can see in Him an excellency and a holiness and a perfection and a purity. He's all that God is, and He's the brightness of His glory, and He's the express image of His person. And therefore, there are many reasons that could be given for why the Father would love the Son the way that He loves the Son. And we are none of that. We are none of that. His love to us is not because of anything in us. His love to us is a self-generated love. One writer has said, We were poor, vile worms of the earth and had no loveliness, no excellency, no good. Nothing to induce His love. And therefore, His love, perhaps instead of a comparison here, we can make something of a contrast. How is the love of the Son for His people different than the love of of the Father for the Son. Well, it's in this way. The Father has every reason to love His Son as He loves Him. The Son has no reason whatsoever to love His people the way that He loves them. His love towards us is the freest of all loves in that sense. He had no other cause He had no other motive but His own compassion and His own grace. Therefore, it's our duty not to expend ourselves on reasons why He would love us as He does, but rather what Christ would have us to occupy ourselves with at all times is how. How has He loved me? So that again, as we consider how, we might be quite certain of His love for us and never doubt it. If we should search for a reason, we'll never find one. But Christ doesn't point us to reason. He points us to the ways in which He's loved us. So how does He do this? He says, I've loved you. And I want want you to know how I've loved you. And if you want to know how I've loved you, then what you need to do is to look at the Father's love for me and to consider it in various ways. And I would say that there are three broad, general ways that we can point to from this text about how it is that the Savior has loved us just as the Father has loved Him. The first of which is this, that the love that the Father has for the Son is an everlasting love. Jesus says, He has loved me. In other words, the love that the Father has for the Son didn't begin at the point of Christ's earthly ministry. He loved Him long before the world began. Christ gives vent to this when He says, In John 17 and verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Before there was ever a universe with a multitude of galaxies and a plethora of stars gleaming in the sky, ever before there was a sun or a moon or an earth or wind or the sea, Before birds and before fish, before the beauty of the flowers and the marvel of all created things, beyond the creation of man, there was God. Self-existent, self-sustaining, self-satisfied, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that Trinitarian relationship has always existed perfect love in the Godhead. Full and complete sweetness. Full and complete complacency. Full and complete delight. The Father delighting Himself in the Son and the Son delighting Himself in the Father forever. And it will always exist. That perfect love that's there in the Godhead will always exist for unending ages to come. Notice again His language, John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also may be with Me where I am. That they might behold that love that You had for Me before the foundation of the world. Where, where, where is He? Is, he, is Christ dead? He's not dead. He's alive and He's seated on His throne in heaven at the right hand of His Father. He has assumed that place that He has forever had in the presence of the Father. And to what end does our Lord desire that we should behold His glory so that we might see that everlasting love? In other words, there was never a time when the Father did not love the Son. And there will never be a time when the Father does not love His Son. Now Christ says here to us, in like manner, in like manner, there's never been a time when I have not loved my people. Nor will there ever be such a time when my love to my people will ever cease. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And dear saint, I say to you, the proclamation that he makes here, he says in this, that he has loved you even as the Father has loved him. His love for His people existed long before your birth. Long before you were ever aware of Him. Long before you ever loved Him. He set His affection upon you. You did not choose Me, He says a few verses later in John 15, 16. But I chose you before the foundation of the world. Long even before His own earthly ministry And to be sure, His love and His care does not end with the termination of His natural life on earth. Christ did not think it enough to come and to die for you. But we're told that He ever lives to make intercession for us. His love is like His life. It's ever and ever, said Aline knowing no remission in degree, nor intermission of time, no cessation of working, 
But His love is forever, and His love is ever in motion toward you. And that choice of the Savior to love His people in this way will continue to endure long after your pilgrimage has ceased in this dusty, sin-trodden earth. It did not. The love of the Savior for His people does not have its beginning in you. And it most certainly will not have its end in you. It's an everlasting love which nothing shall ever be able to extinguish. That's one of the ways that Christ has loved us. The second component of this love is not just the eternal, eternal aspect of it, but the unchangeableness of it. The love of the Father... The love of the Father for the Son is an unchanging love. It's immutable. God is immutable. There's no variation in Him. There's no shadow of turning in Him. And therefore, the love that He has for the Son is an immutable love. It's invariable. It's unalterable. It's not capable or susceptible to change. It's constant and it's without any fluctuation whatsoever for all of eternity. And just as there has never been nor will ever be a time when the Father has not loved His Son, so also has there never been a time when He has loved Him any more or any less than He has always loved Him. Psalm 89, Nevertheless, My loving kindness, I will not utterly take from Him. I will not make it void, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. The Father has loved His Son with an infinite fullness and an infinite constancy in that fullness. That's the Father's love for the Son. And Christ comes to us here, brethren, and He says, So have I loved you. That's staggering. I hope you'll think about that. That is so incredibly staggering to accept that Christ, the second person of the Godhead, has loved me from eternity and will love me for all of eternity is enough, I think, to leave a man absolutely speechless. But to accept that this love is immutable, that it's perfect, and that it's without any change, is to take it up a notch regarding the intensity of that great love that He has for His people. It has burned forever, unceasingly, and with a constant fervor. Not only when I have loved Him fervently... But when my love has seemingly been extinguished altogether, not only when I have seen Him clearly and obeyed Him unswervingly, but even when His presence has seemed to be an infinity away from me and I have stumbled over one lust after the other, over one act of rebellion after the other, after one act of slothfulness after the other. Brethren, I say, even then, even then, His love 
for you has burned with a constant and an unchangeable fervor. He loved you when you were not. He loved you when you were, but were not what you should be. He's loved you into spiritual being. He's loved you so as to keep you in that being. He's loved you so well, so constantly, and so unalterably as to bear with all of your ill manners, said one. To bear with all of your shortcomings, all of your transgressions, all of your coldness, all of your backslide, all of your lack of praying, all of your hardness of heart, all of the smallness and littleness of your own affection towards Him. He has loved you right on without pausing or slackening one bit. That's Christ's love for His people. We may not always be able to clearly see it. We may not always be able to clearly feel its effects. But beyond those dark clouds of providence, His love for His people is still burning with the same intensity and fervency as it always has and as it always will. And why is that? Because His love for His people is like the Father's love For Him. It can't be extinguished. And it cannot be diminished. And why is that? Because it doesn't depend on us. His love for us depends on Him. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so is His love. And this, I believe, is precisely what the Lord means to convey to us in these words here in this text. Even as the Father has loved me from all eternity, so I have loved you everlastingly. And even as the Father has loved me immutably, so I have loved you unchangingly. Still, there's a third element of this love, and that's this. It's inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. I think, personally, that this may well be the most important aspect of the Savior's love because of its practical effects. It's this aspect of His love, the inexhaustibleness of it, the infinitude of it. It's that aspect of His love which makes it possible for Him to love us everlastingly and makes it possible for Him to love us unchangeably and immutably. It's this aspect of the infinitude, the inexhaustibleness of His love which provoked Him to action. And it's also this aspect, probably, that's closest to His heart as He looks His disciples in the eyes and wants to convey something very powerful to them. When I speak of the intensity of this great love a father for son and son for people, which does not change and burns forever. I speak of it in that way because it's without borders as to the greatness of it. It truly is, brethren, when we think about the love of our Savior for His people, a love which passes knowledge, a love which cannot be contained by human reason, by human affection, by human volition. 
It transcends all the bounds of what we are. And if there's any doubt as to its measureless width and length and depth and height, then I tell you, take one glimpse at the cross and it'll be enough to crush all your doubts. Greater love, he says to these people in this context, greater love has no one than this, than to lay his life down for his friends. As we look at the cross, we see the greatness of His love because of its cost. It cost Him everything. That's no light thing. When you think of what happened there on that cross and that Christ was willing to lay down His life for His people, what it meant for Him was that he would drink to the very dregs all of the wrath of his Father, whom he had forever delighted himself in. And that the Father himself would turn away from the Son in some way that is unexplainable to us. That Christ there on that cross would cry out, My God, my God, the one who has said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My God, why have you forsaken me? The inexhaustible or infinitude of the love of Christ is seen and displayed in what it cost Christ when He hung and He died on that cross. And it was everything. It's seen also because of the freedom of it. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And the inexhaustibleness of his love is seen because of the objects of it. If we need anything to prove that the love that Christ pours upon his people is an infinite or an inexhaustible love, then just look at yourself. It's always been interesting to me that in John chapter 15, he says, No greater love has any man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. But when he laid down his life for us, we were not his friends. So if the greatest love is to suffer on behalf of his friends, then what is it to suffer on behalf of your enemies? I would say an infinite, inexhaustible, mysterious love. Again, I quote Aline, If the pens of all the world were employed to write volumes of love, if the tongues of all the living were exercised in nothing else but talking of this love, If all the hearts that be were made up of nothing but love, and all of the powers and all of the affections of the mind were turned into one, that is to say, into the power of love, yet this were no less than infinitely too little, either to conceive or to express or to exhaust the greatness of Christ's love for His people. I've said this in another sermon, but I think that it bears repeating here. The nature of Christ's love is such 
that it will never give you up. It is a love that will never let you go. It's a love that never despairs of us. It's infinite. It's eternal love which cannot be exhausted. It does not despair and it does not ever grow weary. And that is such great news for sinners like us. Because we may drink and we may drink and we may drink of His love and yet never impoverish it one whit. I ask you the question, do you have any sense of how desperately you need the love of Christ? If you do, don't think for one second that by coming to Him and begging Him and taking of this love and drinking it in that you're robbing Him of anything at all. You're not. His love is an infinite love. No matter how much of His love we've comprehended, no matter how much of, of His love that we've felt, there is still an infinite ocean of it left for us to drink in. And no matter how many times you must return to Him broken and sorrowful over your sin or your need, don't ever say, He won't hear me. Don't ever say, He won't take me back. You cannot diminish the storehouses of the love of the Savior. Therefore, I say to us this morning, and we'll come back to this this afternoon, draw with joy then from the wells of this great salvation and this great love. And drink it, and drink it in, and drink it in again. Because you will never exhaust it. Brethren, here in a very short, brief amount of time is something, something for you to take home, I hope, and to chew upon with regard to the nature of His love as He expresses it here. And as surely as we could ever deconstruct the love of the Father, so then we might be able to deconstruct the love of the Son. But you can't. And you won't. And thank God for it. Thank God for it. Father, I pray that every heart in this place, irrespective of anything that I have tried to say this morning, would be smitten with that great and awesome and powerful love of the Savior. For He has loved His people with a love that is eternal, unchangeable, and inexhaustible. And we have it drawn out for us here in the clearest lines. He stated it so simply, I have loved you, even as the Father has loved me. Lord, help us to know that love. Help us as we come back this afternoon to think upon it, to abide in that love. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.